just a note of clarification. David asked me, I am going to explain this proper one, right? And I said, yes, I will. Uh, last week, we ended, the, um, we ended the, the first part of the liturgical calendar as a church. The, uh, the church calendar begins with Advent. It doesn't begin with January 1st. It begins with Advent, four Sundays prior to Christmas. It moves through those four Sundays of Advent into Christmas, and then you have Christmas time, those 12 days of Christmas that we love singing about for minutes on end. You step then into Epiphany, where we remember the wise men and, and how Christ has been manifest to the whole world. He's not just some national Messiah for Israel and said He is the Redeemer of all mankind. And we remember that the wise men came from the east, came from Orient lands, and they came and they brought their gifts to the Christ child. We begin the trek uh, preparing ourselves for Easter with the season of Lent. And Lent, we move on, we start with Ash Wednesday. If, uh, if you live in New Orleans, you have Fat Tuesday just prior to that. You move through Lent, uh, you get towards Holy Week with Palm Sunday and Maundy Thursday and Good Friday, Holy Saturday, where we remember that Christ was buried. And then we have Easter Sunday. You then have a period of Easter, a season of Easter, which ends at Pentecost. We celebrated Pentecost, the coming of the Holy Spirit just a couple of Sundays before. That was 10 days after Ascension Thursday. After Pentecost, we have Trinity Sunday. And that was last week. And now we begin what's called common time, or proper season. And it's a period of 29 weeks or so where we spend time reflecting on any number of things. Some people preach from the Old Testament during that time. Some people preach a series of sermons. Some people... um, Worship in a variety of ways during that time, but basically it's kind of the end of the season. We've, we've reached that last period of the liturgical calendar, and we're walking through this summer season and walking through the season of autumn as we prepare again for Advent. So that's why there's proper one up there. This is the first week of that common time, the first week of, of that proper season. And we'll actually be uh, spending a few weeks here in the Old Testament making a trek through it. And so that, uh, that's, that's a commercial for you to come on back and, and share this time as we walk through the Old Testament together in the coming weeks. Exodus chapter 19. I'm trusting you found it even though it's in your Old Testaments. I'm trusting you found it by now. We'll be reading those first eight verses. In the third month after the children of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on the same day they came to the wilderness of Sinai, for they had departed from Rephidim, had come to the wilderness of Sinai, and camped in the wilderness. So Israel camped there before the mountain. And Moses went up to God, and and the Lord called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the children of Israel, You have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to Myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey My voice and keep My covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to Me above all people. 
for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which you shall speak to the children of Israel. So Moses came and called for the elders of the people and laid before them all these words which the Lord commanded him. Then all the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. So Moses brought back the words of the people to the Lord. Let's pray. Remember, O Lord, what You have done in us and not what we have deserved. And as You have called us into Your service, make us worthy of our calling. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with You and the Holy Spirit, one God, both now and forever. Amen. The disciples died. And within a few decades of their deaths, there arose a man, a theologian, named Marcion. You haven't heard of him, most of you. The teachings of Marcion posed a threat to the early church. In fact, it was one of the first challenges faced by the early church. He lived during the he was born in the toward the end of the disciples' lives at the end of the first century after Jesus. And he died in the middle of the second century. So he was a very early figure in the life of the church. The challenge that his teachings posed to the church was simply this. The God of the Old Testament is a God of anger and wrath. And we see Him in the law. But the God of the New Testament is a God of love and mercy. And we see Him in the coming of Jesus. Marcion believed that in the end, the good news won the day. You have the Old Testament and this God who's filled with anger and who's filled with rage and vengeance and He insists that we obey. He insists that we follow Him faithfully so that we can be saved. But the God of the New Testament is one of love and mercy. One who's more relaxed One who gives us good news, not bad news. The church unanimously cried out, this is heresy. This is wrong. This is not the case. You know, heresy always resurrects itself. Heresy is simply false teaching. The same mistakes in thinking have been made countless, countless times throughout the history, not just of the church, but throughout the history of civilization. We we look at, you know, people who lived in 4000 B.C. 
and we think they're a bunch of weirdos. You find them still living all around the globe, right, Holly? Paganism is nothing that's gone. We live among pagans. You live beside pagans. You work with them. We knock on wood because, hey, we don't want bad luck to come toward us. Heresy always resurrects itself. We, to this day, in the West, we still, to this day, most of us are convinced in the Bible-believing church, in the Bible-believing church that insists upon a literal reading of the, of the Scriptures, in the Bible-believing church that insists upon creationism, in the Bible-believing church that insists upon the divinity of Jesus, we still to this day, most of us, are convinced that in the Old Testament, people earned their salvation. They were saved by keeping the law. And that in the New Testament, we simply receive salvation. We walk through a prayer. We pray that prayer at the altar with someone who's walking us through it. And we are saved not by keeping the law, but by simply ignoring it. There is no more law. There is no more expectation. There is no more anything that's required of us as people who have been saved. We no longer need the Old Testament, we convince ourselves. And we miss out on it. We miss out on the benefits of the Old Testament by ignoring it. By forgetting about it. I have a confession to make to you. To both you and David. And this is going to be news to him. David, I am sorry. I actually put the wrong text for you to read in the bulletin. And um, when you started reading, I thought, what is he reading? And I looked and I thought, oh, wow. It was supposed to say 2 Timothy. It said I had him reading 2 Peter. That's why we don't read there you go. That's why you, it's, it can't be counted on as reliable, right? This bulletin, it, it's not inerrant. It's, it is very errant from time to time. But when you were reading, I thought, how fascinating, because it, it kind of makes the point. Uh, in the text you were reading, David, from, from Peter, Peter's making the case that that the New Testament church should read the Scriptures. Don't neglect them. In fact... He, in a very cumbersome way, talks about how Paul is very cumbersome. He's, he, he, it gets complicated reading Peter's argument, and he's trying to talk about how complicated Paul gets. And so I think Peter's falling into the trap that he thinks that, uh, that his buddy Paul has gotten into. But Peter's saying, don't neglect the Scriptures. Don't neglect it because it's difficult to understand. Press on into it. The text that I had was hoping to ask David to read uh, from Second Timothy, uh, verse uh, chapter three, verses fourteen through seventeen. That's where we find that statement: "All Scripture is breathed out by God; it is inspired of God." We we think of that term inspiration, and we think of it as very you know high flown technical term. What, what does that mean? It is inspired. It is breathed out from God. Now when Peter is writing 
to the church. And when Paul is writing to Timothy, a pastor of the church, both of them, in referencing the Scriptures, they're not speaking exclusively of the Old Testament because they understood that God was writing Scripture in the New Testament church. But they were speaking primarily, at least, of the Old Testament. It has been breathed out by God. Paul told Timothy, don't neglect it. Do not neglect it because it is good for teaching. It is good for discipleship. It is good for a whole host of things. It is beneficial to us as New Testament believers to be faithful in studying and reading the Scriptures. Specifically those of the Old Testament. You know, in many ways, in many, many ways, the Old Testament has been so wrongly understood by us. But in fact, the Old Testament is a story of grace, mercy, and redemption. It is not the story of a mean and vengeful God. It is not the story of earned salvation. It is the story of grace. It is the story of God's mercy toward His people and toward the world. It is the story of how God has redeemed and longs to redeem His people. And the New Testament, that's incorrect up here, the New Testament, rather than being just a story of, hey, you know, come to Jesus and live how you want. Instead, the New Testament is a story of how do we live New life through faithful obedience. How is it that we as the church who have been redeemed by God, who have known God's grace and His mercy, how then do we live? What does the church look like? How do families function? How can we be faithful to this God who has saved us? So, in a lot of ways, the New Testament is kind of like a a second giving of a law. How do we live in covenant with God? He has saved us. He has shown us grace. He has shown us mercy. He has redeemed us. How are we going to live in fellowship with Him? How How are we going to be faithful in our obedience toward Him? The The thing that trips us up, generally speaking is the, the idea of themes. You know, we remember certain things in the Old Testament as, as being themes. We remember, you know, Leviticus and how there was all the ceremony and all of, all of the, the ritual. We remember all the sacrifices. We remember the Amalekites being wiped out. We, we remember, you know, Joshua leading Israel into battle. We remember the period of Judges and Deborah putting a stake through the skull of a guy, you know, the side of a guy's skull. We remember all that stuff and we think, yeah, it's nasty there. What's going on? All this death and mayhem. And we forget those minor things. We forget that, that there are obvious symbols of grace and mercy and compassion in the Old Testament. We, in the New Testament, we get to 
you know, this God of grace and mercy and love, and we see Christ on a cross, and we think about how beautiful God's love for us is in redeeming us. We think about, you know, we've been saved by grace through faith, and it's not of ourselves. It's not anything we've done. It's not by works that we've been saved. And we forget those minor themes in the New Testament, such as the very next verse that says, you are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. It is a travesty if we emphasize one verse and completely forget about the very next verse to try to prove a point. You have major themes in the Old Testament that creep up into the New Testament as minor themes. Because the New Testament is assuming you know your Old Testament. You have minor themes in the Old Testament that are highlighted as major themes in the New Testament. That's how it works. It was John Wesley, I'm paraphrasing here, John Wesley said essentially to hedonists, in other words, people who are just living life how they want, pagans, to hedonists preach law. Good grief, they're going to end their civilization. Society can't exist that way. So to hedonists preach law, to legalists preach grace. And look at what happens in the story of God's revelation of Himself. God comes to Israel who has been living for hundreds of years in pagan Egypt where there is sacrifice, where there is the worship of false gods. And God comes to Israel having lived in a very hedonistic society, a very, very thoroughly pagan society. He redeems them. He first redeems them. He does not give them a law. He first redeems them. Think of Moses at the burning bush. Go to Pharaoh and tell him, let my people go. Yahweh, what am I going to say? Why? How? Who am I going to say is doing this? God's answer to Moses and ultimately His answer really to Israel is pack your bags because I love you that much. That's the story of grace. Other than the cross, perhaps the greatest of all symbols of grace, mercy and redemption is the burning bush. Israel's done nothing to earn God's favor. Israel has done nothing to earn His mercy. Israel has not done works to redeem themselves. And God says, Your cries have come up and I have heard you and I have remembered my covenant to your father Abraham. It's time to go home. Pack your bags, we're going to the promised land. In redeeming them from a, a society and a culture that was so thoroughly hedonistic, God gives them a law. 
Here's how you live. Here's how you live in covenant faithfulness to me. There are certain things you can't do. And there are certain things you must do. In fact, a lot of the laws, if not most of them, are simply about teaching a point. You can't wear a poly-cotton blend. You know, Moses told Israel that. Because Yahweh told Moses, you tell Israel, you can't wear a poly-cotton blend. No 50-50, no 60-40, no no 90-10. No 98% cotton, 2% spandex. You don't wear blended materials. Why? Because cotton is cotton and polyester is polyester. And the two don't mix. Object lessons. When Jesus comes on the scene, who's He addressing? He is addressing people who have so been so thoroughly saturated with the law that they have become legalists. We give the Pharisees a hard time. We beat them up. We besmirch them. We talk bad about them. We do everything but swear at them. And we think they're absolutely horrendous. But think of, what, think of why they came about. Israel had God's law, forgot God's law, abandoned God's law, and was taken into captivity. When they returned from captivity, they tried to reestablish their national identity. And the pagans moved in. And they sacrificed swine on the altar of God in the temple in Jerusalem. That's not in your Old Testament. It's in the books that we call the Apocrypha. But it was history that was recorded during those 400 years after Malachi, or as you might know him, you might know him as the Italian prophet Malachi. And so the Pharisees say, this, this is a train wreck. This is because we have been unfaithful to God and His covenant. This is because we abandoned His law and we swore by blood that we would keep this law. And look what we've gotten ourselves into. We've spent time in captivity. We've come back from it. And the world's thumb is in our backs and they're sacrificing pigs on God's altar. This will never happen again. And so what did they do? They took the law... They built laws around it. Fences. Not only will you not break this law, you won't get anywhere near breaking that law. And not only that, we're going to build another set of fence around that. Because not only are you not going to break the law, you're not going to come anywhere near the law. In fact, you're not going to even come so close that you can see the concept of breaking the law. And so Jesus comes on the scene and the Pharisees are obsessed with how many times you wash your hands ceremoniously before you consume a meal. So he's preaching grace to those who have become legalists, justifiably so. 
the Pharisees were the extreme right. They were the holiness folks. They were the folks who said, you don't dance, you don't listen to rock and roll. The question behind the giving of the Torah, and I use that word Torah very purposely. We've heard it and we think of it, wait a minute, that's a Jewish term, right? It is the word that we translate, unfortunately, law. But it doesn't mean law. These are not rules. It means instruction. The Torah of God, the instruction of God, is not some set of classroom rules. Instead, it's in answer to this question. How do we live life in covenant with Yahweh, who has so graciously shown mercy in redeeming us? Remember, the law is not given, the Torah is not given until Exodus 20. That is after the crossing of the Red Sea. That's at Sinai. That is after the plagues in Egypt. That is after Moses had gone to Pharaoh and said, you will let my people go. They're going home. The law is not, is not brought up. It's not even mentioned until after God has redeemed His people. After He has shown them grace and mercy. So, God says, you've seen what I've done. You've seen what happened to the Egyptians in your behalf. You have seen how I bore you on wings as eagles. Do you want to be in a relationship with me? You can be my special people. You can be to me a kingdom of priests. We think of priests, ah, that's legalism again. What does a priest do? A priest is an intercessor. A link. The priesthood was a sign of God's mercy. It was not a sign of earning His favor. The writer to the Hebrews in the New Testament says very explicitly, there was not a single person in the Old Testament who earned redemption. They all looked forward to redemption in faithful hope. Moses, Abraham, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, Ezekiel, none of them were saved by keeping law. They kept law because God had redeemed them. They lived faithfully in covenant with Yahweh who had been so merciful and so gracious to them. We've forgotten this story. We have forgotten this testament, which we call old. And we think, what in the, What do you mean we've forgotten? We know it's there, we just avoid it. <laughs> Let's be honest. 
You remember King Josiah, I believe he was made king in Israel at the age of eight, Imogene. Eight years old and leading in the, the nation of Israel. And Josiah established a number of reforms in Israel. He inherited a really terrible, really, really law-forsaken kingdom. And you remember the story of Josiah and how he was having the, uh, the temple cleaned up a little bit. They were doing spring cleaning in the temple. And they came across the scroll, the Torah. Wait a minute, king, we found something here. We found our covenant with Yahweh. We found something we forgot all about. Man, that seems like ages ago that, that we made this promise to God. We forgot all about it. Perhaps it seems like ages since we've taken seriously the Old Testament. And we've just kind of put it out of sight and out of mind. And we've forgotten about it. We've forgotten what it means, what it teaches. We've forgotten its story. We've forgotten that God reveals to us His grace and His mercy. He reveals to us how He is a redeeming God in that Old Testament. And unfortunately for us, in forgetting about the Old Testament, we are holding on to this, and we have forgotten all about that. That's three-fourths of your Bible. And we've neglected it. Because we think that in it, God expects us to perfectly keep His law so that He can feel good about us enough to save us. We, at VBSs, we like to teach our kids stories about Daniel in the lion's den. We like when you know Advent rolls around. I don't know about you, but I do. I like to break out Handel's Messiah and hear those Old Testament passages sung. My mind treks through the prophecy of Isaiah every year at Advent. But we use those different things in the Old Testament that we that we kind of get a kick out of. We take and pick. We treat it buffet style. I think I'll have a little bit of creation, maybe a little bit of flood, but not any of that begot stuff. I'll read a little bit about uh, the Red Sea and the plagues because that stuff's exciting, but maybe we'll get through the Ten Commandments, but then we'll drop off Exodus and forget about it. Leviticus and what in the world is in the book of Numbers? We like a little bit about Gideon. After all, we you know send a check to the Gideon so that they'll give out just New Testaments, not Old Testaments. 
Because we're uncomfortable with the Old Testament. We see it as just little stories and vignettes that are kind of inspiring. And we don't take seriously what God has done in the Old Testament. We forget the Old Testament through neglect. We forget basically that it's even there. Oh yeah, there is that other three-fourths of the Scriptures. We shouldn't feel ashamed. I mean, we should feel ashamed about that, but we shouldn't feel like that's crazy behavior. After all, we forget that there's another two-thirds of the world out there. Because we live life where we live life. We spend our time where we spend our time. We hang out in the New Testament and we forget about the Old Testament. We hang out in Atlanta and we forget, we forget that there's you know, a savanna. We forget that there's a Papua New Guinea out there. But there is. We forget that the Old Testament is even there. We forget that it is part of the self-revelation of the one true God. God has revealed Himself in Holy Scripture. And we do ourselves a grave injustice when we say, I'll just take the last chapter. We quote all the time John the Revelator saying, anyone who adds anything to this book or anyone who takes anything from this book, bad things are going to happen. He's going to sizzle like bacon on the hot gridiron of hell. And we say, Amen! Meanwhile, we've ignored three-fourths of this book. God has revealed Himself in the Old Testament. We forget the Old Testament in that it anticipates Jesus, the Messiah of Israel and the Redeemer of the world. It's all about Jesus. It was Martin Luther. He said a number of really crazy things, especially later in life, but he said a number of really good things. And one of the good things he said is that the Scriptures, Old and New Testament, it's like a symphony where the constant refrain, where the motif is Jesus Christ. It's anticipating Him, it is Him, and then it reflects back on Him. That's the movement of the Old Testament through the Gospels and into the Epistles. The Old Testament is about Jesus. What He's going to come to do. We forget the Old Testament in that it is a Christian text. You do not have a Jewish book and then a Christian book. You have a Christian book. The Old Testament is a Christian text. And therefore we forget that it is essential to biblical faith. We talk about biblical faith all the time. We talk about how people don't believe their Bibles anymore. People don't read their Bibles anymore. You know, if only we could get people learning the Bible a little bit more. And we ourselves neglect three-fourths of it. It is indeed a forgotten testament. Because it's been a neglected testament. What I want to invite you to do is throughout this 
proper season. I want you to travel with me through the Old Testament. We're going to look at some major themes, some of the key players, some of the significant events, and all of this with an eye toward how do we see the eternally one and triune God who has revealed Himself to humanity in its pages. It is a story of grace and mercy and redemption. It is a story of the faithfulness of God even when it hurts Him. It is a story of manna being provided in the wilderness as we're headed toward a land flowing with milk and honey. That's grace. That's mercy. That is how God redeems His people. Let's pray.